Because I, I just got lucky. I went out and I got paid to go walk in the desert for 35 years. I was like, geez, this place is pretty cool. Whoa, look at that. Wow, look at that over there. Hey, that snake is doing something interesting. That's just been my life. And it's just like, how can I take that and deliver it, deliver the best parts of it to the rest of my species? That's a reason. That feels like my mission. It's just like all the rest of it, saving the tortoise and all that. I'm trying but it's really wake humans up. Welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. This is a place for us to explore the wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke. I'm your host, Jeff Johnson, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Hey everyone, today's guest is Tim Shields. Tim's been a desert biologist for the last 35 years with a focus on studying the desert tortoise and saving them from extinction. He's authored, co-authored, and illustrated numerous scientific papers, and his perspectives on conservation biology have been featured in BBC World News, CNN, Audubon Magazine, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, and the Sierra Club, to name a few. He's also the founder of Hardshell Labs, which will make more sense as we get into the episode. For some context, I was at the Mountain Film Festival in Encinitas, California, of course watching some short films, and there was one that really caught my attention. It's a short film called EcoHack, and it's a powerful yet playful take on saving the desert tortoise. And the film's main protagonist is Tim Shields, our guest today. As soon as I saw the film, I knew I had to talk to Tim. I reached out to him and said, we need to talk. And here we are now about to record a week later. Now, I have to admit, I never really thought I'd have a deep conversation about the desert tortoise, but we did and we went well beyond that. What made this conversation fun is that Tim Shields isn't your average biologist. He's a deep dude, he's a creative guy. And as you'll see if you ever get a chance to watch the film, he joined forces with some young techies to create innovative solutions to rebalancing ecosystems. In this conversation, sure, we'll learn a thing or two about the plight of the desert tortoise, but we'll also get into using lasers, drones, and 3D printing, and we discuss the potential for turning online gaming into ecosystem conservation. Yep, you heard that right. Tim's got some bonkers ideas, and I think they're rad. Not only that, but Tim regales us with a story from the time he played a game of chicken with a Mojave rattlesnake, so you have to listen in to see how that goes. Enjoy. Here we go. Tim Shields, welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time today. It's a pleasure. In your bio, it said you've logged 25,000 miles on foot. I imagine most of that's in the desert, maybe not all of it, but weird stuff sometimes happens out in the desert. Do you have any fun, weird stories or anything you've experienced out in the desert in those 25,000 miles that stands out as... You can, you can almost not avoid <laughs> weird experiences. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a tortoise story because this is also, it's gonna feed into what we're talking about, but I'll set the scene and we'll go from there. 
I was on a tortoise tracking project and it was a, a community of tortoises we'd been studying for about 10 years. I was a, a minor player in this project, but I was one night, usually you track tortoises during the day. It's, you know, you have the antenna and you're up and you get the beep beeps and you zero in on them. And I got this weird idea to do it at night. And I just felt like I was restless and something told me, all right, go, go radio track tortoises at night. And so I, I got a ping and I traced it down. And here are two tortoises sitting out in the open. It's summer. So they weren't in their burrows. And it was a large male and a small male. That's already weird that you have two male tortoises who are choosing to be close to each other. I thought, oh, this is very interesting. I'll have to check this out tomorrow. So I come back in the morning hours and I check on the two tortoises. They're sitting completely passively, pacifically, very peacefully together. And they're, they're almost nose to nose. They're sort of at a 90 degree angle. Little guy and a big guy. The little guy's maybe at most half the weight of the big tortoise. So I watched these two because the project was flexible enough that I could pay attention to what I wanted to pay attention to. This was by far the most interesting situation because usually you get male tortoises together, they're gonna fight and one is trying to dominate the other one. These two tortoises sit together for 15 hours, completely like, hey, getting along fine. And I'm watching and this is very weird and then finally, the big tortoise ambles up and sort of at a T intersection, sort of T-bones the other guy and puts his guler horns under him and hoists him up into a bush and holds him there. And the little guy's kind of like flailing his legs a little bit. And for 30 seconds, this big tortoise is like, has this guy pinned up in a bush. <laughs> and like, that's odd. He lets him down. And I've seen dozens of fights between evenly matched male tortoises, and they are violent uh, interactions. And there's definitely, it doesn't, almost never ends in death or injury, but it's violent. They're slamming each other, they're rolling each other. If they're up in the hills, they try to tumble the other guy off a rock. These two start to do battle, but it's a battle at half speed. And I studied karate for five years. And in the dojo, you know, the senseis were black belt, multiple black belt level. They could each have killed us easily. <laughs> and yet we went through half speed or three quarter speed sparring. And it was exactly that way. I'm watching this big tortoise and this little tortoise. And clearly the big guy could destroy the little one. And they go through these motions and they have this fight. But it's a very... Um, stylized and limited aggression fight and it's the second time I've seen this and it was weird and I have thoughts about what it was but the fact that the violence was limited that it was two males sitting peacefully for 15 hours and then doing this very stylized battle um, was weird and I'll leave it till the end to describe what I think was happening there. But that was weird. That was one where, and, and you get this a lot if you're paying close attention to any particular species, you will eventually see something, if your mind is open enough, you'll see something that doesn't compute. And it's because your mind is not large enough or not experienced mm -hmm. enough 
to understand. And that's the invitation of science is to really good science is complete open-mindedness and a willingness to be confused and also a willingness to throw away ideas that you have perhaps held dear that no longer fit, that, that aren't up to the task of matching reality. So that's sort of the process of being a field scientist is going out and having your preconceptions smashed. It's a very humbling experience, <laughs> but it's wonderfully humbling because that's, I think that's kind of what we need right now. We need some humility mm. as a species. And man, field biology in the desert will teach you a lot of humility. It's yeah, just like you get this idea of, <laughs> of what's happening and then something shows up that just yeah. you know, blows it out of the water. Yeah. That's always an exciting moment for me. Well, that brought up a couple of things for me. One, my, I, it's, I'm glad you mentioned martial arts or karate because the first thing I thought was a sort of MMA sort of training thing, but mm -hmm. we'll come back to it since you choosed sure. it. It also made me think about the film Ecohack. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to come, I, I, you know, I want to go into the next part, which is, you know, tell me how the film came about and all mm -hmm. of that. But one of the questions I, I have about the film before we kind of lay the groundwork for it that you just sort of brought up in your answer was you talked about and it comes up the flipping the intelligence pattern or thinking through the lens of these other creatures and other species we share the earth with. And it's easy for us humans to get caught up in thinking that we're the smart ones. <laughs> he rolls his eyes. Yeah, yeah, Tim's rolling his eyes now. Uh, maybe start there. Where sure. Um, I think we think way too much of our own intelligence. And, and if you look at it, DNA is a pretty conservative uh, molecule. And we share 99 point something percent of our DNA with chimpanzees. We probably share... 95% with tortoises, like DNA uh, makes us all a family. Those of us who possess DNA and whose heredity is determined by DNA are all really close relatives. It's a little bit absurd that the, the dominant paradigm in scientific thinking was that somehow humans were so unique when we have so little that is unique. We have unique arrangements of DNA, we have unique talents and proclivities, but there's nothing about us that's fundamentally ecologically unique. We're, we're a variation on a theme. And so for this one particular ape to get it into its, its common mind that it is somehow separate from the rest is bad science. Mm -hmm. And part of my excitement in exploring the world is learning where that um, prejudice falls apart or runs upon the rocks of reality. So I'm going to tease back to those two tortoises. Yeah. They were doing something, I think, that is very much akin to something that humans do. And I'm, I'll, I'll get to that. <laughs> but it, but it, it is, it's just like we have, we have way too, we're t way too impressed by the volume of our brains mm. because it doesn't make us that special. Yeah. You know, we're weird. We are special, but we're, yeah. but 
tortoises are special and cheetahs yeah. are special and and houseflies are special. Yeah. My wife and I went to, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Andrew Huberman's work at Stanford, the neuroscientist. He did a live talk the other night and he was talking about some research around cuttlefish and octopuses and how they have theory of mind as well. It's like, wow. And he described the situation where the cuttlefish were changing their camouflage based on where the other people were headed in the room. It was super interesting, yep. but anyway, it brings that well, to mind. And, and then theory of mind, um, we tend to ascribe, it's, it's only those species that speak a, a, a verbal or physical language close enough to ours that we can even perceive their theory of mind. Right. I think we're vastly underestimating how many minds are out there in the world. I totally agree with that. Uh, let's go back to uh, the film, Ecohack. Okay, sure. So, you know, quick background. I saw the film at the Mountain Film Festival, the Encinitas version last week. Saw your film, loved it. Mm -hmm. I got to get in touch with uh, Tim. How did the film come about? Who made it? You know, what? anything you want to lay the ground on sure. about the film and how it came about? I had a... A student, I taught uh, drama and debate in a high school in Alaska, in Haynes, Alaska. And I had this extremely talented kid on the team named Key Haywood. He decided to become a filmmaker. He moved down to the Bay Area, uh, went to the Cal Academy of Arts, uh, studied film, started working with these two guys who had a company called Speculative Films. Uh, mm -hmm. Brett Marty and Josh Eisenberg, we all had breakfast one day and Key just said, you got to meet these filmmakers. And he told them, you got to meet this, this friend of mine. So we got together, we had breakfast. I told him, you know, I gave him a rap about what our company was doing. And they said, oh, that sounds really interesting. And, you know, I was honest with them. I said, Hardshell Labs cannot afford to hire you to make a film about <laughs> us. And about a year later, they contacted me back and they said, we want to just do this on spec. I mean, per their name, um, they just thought it was an interesting story. And so they started coming out. They interviewed me. We went out in the field together. They just tagged along on various field projects. And then they spliced it together with interviews. And it's when you do a film like that, me, I'm like, I've never been the subject of a film. And I realized, you know, they're taking 50 hours or 60 hours of video. And it's like, they can turn me into anything based on this stuff. <laughs> and I was so thrilled when I saw the thing, how, how elegantly they captured the spirit behind the enterprise, behind the company, behind my, what I'm trying to do. Um, it was thrilling to see how well they did it they they caught it perfectly mm. and they're just really good filmmakers and the film is getting uh a really warm welcome in the world and it's largely it's partially like you know i think the work we're doing is really interesting but their treatment of it is very funny and and beautiful so yeah, I'm Go right there see with it. you. I'm it's right really there. good. It's a good movie. Yeah. 16 minutes long. You're not going to lose that much of your life watching it. And it and it has something that I'm that's really dear to me, and that is humor. I think the environmental movement is starved for humor. 
and that humor is a huge fuel for action like and because it at base it's joy and there is a dire need for joy in the realm of environmentalism and so the the fact that it's a somewhat joyful film um is really important to me and it's something i'm trying i'm trying to infuse some joy into the whole enterprise I, I absolutely love this. This is something, uh, shout out to Justin Wilkenfeld, who is the founder of uh, Kind Humans. Him and I talk about this a lot from a brand and storytelling mm-hmm. perspective is, especially when it comes to people, planet issues, it's, it seems like all storytellers went, we can only play the virtue signaling, finger wagging, punishing side of stories here and it's like we all left out humor and fun and some enjoyment here and i think i can't wait to see hopefully this is a sign this film is a sign of more of this to come because it's it's been absent largely yeah and i think it's um it's a a huge strategic mistake on the part of those who advocate for the well-being of the planet um and i think it comes out of true believers um, who are attached to a noble cause and are attracted to martyrdom, Mm. speaking frankly. I think those are the people who have been attracted to and have dominated environmentalism. And I respect a lot of those people and I love them, but it's a terrible sales strategy. We're trying to sell the planet here and we're selling it constantly with stories of, of destruction and dire future and all of that and it's just not a very attractive approach to marketing a planet that you know despite however much trouble we've caused here is still a pretty freaking amazing place i'm looking out at this hillside of pine trees and just wondering what's going on between those pine trees yeah they're talking to each (laughs) other they've been here for a while there's stuff going on out there and everywhere i look in nature is wonder and fascination Mm. and less so than there used to be there's five percent of the tortoises now than there were when i started as a tortoise biologist but those five percent are still pretty freaking fascinating it's so cool so they're there and it's like any bug you see is worthy of study and and appreciation yeah everything you're saying is so near and dear to my heart and everything we're trying to do with nature junkie mm-hmm. and uh, Tim is referencing, by the way, the Torrey pines that are outside my house, uh, Torrey pines trees. And when I sit out in the morning and look at them, I, I think of them as the guardians of the Canyon yep. <laughs> and wonder what they're up to. Uh, so to, to back up a little bit. So for the audience, eco hack is short film, 16 minutes, super powerful film for 16 minutes. Mm-hmm. And even though Tim is the protagonist, you know, the, the tortoise is the hero, the desert tortoise is the hero. How, how did you, let's, why the desert tortoise? Happens to be the species I know best because I got, and it's, it was accidental. I finished a master's degree at UC Riverside in 1979 and immediately stumbled into a job with, uh, Dr. Christine Berry, who was setting up a prescient conservation biologist who foresaw the need for careful population monitoring of desert tortoises. 
I think she foresaw, she saw the threats facing them and realized the track they were on and decided to gather, we call it baseline numbers, but they weren't baseline numbers, but early numbers. And when I started at, um, I did a seven studies at a place called the Desert Tortoise Research Natural Area. When I first, this, I'm just going to spit some numbers at you. Yeah, um, so it. it was a three square mile plot in 1979. Three of us, each of us covered a square mile of the three square mile plot. Each of three field workers. We found 590 individual tortoises. We had 1,500 plus total encounters of 590 tortoises in 1979. We went back in 85. We found 440 in 89 to 20 in 93 110 in 97 55 i mean it was remarkable it was a 50 percent reduction every four years uh 2001 it was down somewhere around 45 something like that we did it in 2012 so there was a long gap the last time we we covered that plot was 2012 three square miles think we found 75 mm. there was a slight uptick mm. but 590 down to even 75 that's the story of tortoises interacting with human beings in the late 20th century mm. um in the course of that work we studied a lot of the sources of mortality and it was clear that the burgeoning raven populations were one of the existential threats facing the species and one that I thought was manageable. There were respiratory diseases, there was habitat loss, there were a lot of big threats facing the tortoise, but one of them was the the explosion of raven populations and the fact that ravens prey on juvenile desert tortoises. So in 2011, I sort of reached a breaking point and I decided uh, I can't be passive anymore I have to I have to transcend the objective observer role and start to do something and I basically at that point I had spent my entire career 35 years walking through the desert circum the equivalent of circumnavigating the planet um, watching this disaster unfold and taking very careful notes which is valuable work but i just reached a point where it's like what good is all this what good is this what good is what i'm doing if am i just going to watch the end of the film and not intervene at all and i made a decision then to i said okay ravens are it i'll try to do something about ravens and here, this was a somewhat mystical experience <laughs> to me. <laughs> Do so, tell. <laughs> so, I, I just I thought it was like what what possible what are the tools that could possibly be used? Because until that point, what I had was rocks. If I saw a raven standing on the desert, I would chase it and I'd pick up a rock. I never came anywhere close to hitting a raven with a rock, but I would throw the rocks just to let them know I was un, un you know displeased with their presence. And that was my toolkit for dealing with ravens. And so I just sat one night and I thought, 
radio-controlled airplanes. Maybe we could scare them with radio-controlled airplanes. Mm. I, I thought that's probably pretty silly, but it's a starting point. And so I, I plucked up my courage, and I camped one night with these two botanists. And I'll never forget this. One of them was this thin, thin as a rail woman, and very much a botanist. There's a certain botanist or a certain way. And they can hunch over a little plot of desert and pick out individual blades of grass and count them all up. So anyway, they have a different mentality from the sort of the hunter-gatherer, herpetologist um, model. So anyway, talking to these two botanists, and I just decide, all right, I'm just going to spill the beans. They're probably going to laugh at me for this idea of radio-controlled airplanes and trying to scare ravens away but i'll i'll just start with them I'll, I'll see what they think so i said you know here's my idea ravens are an existential threat and we need to do something about them and i think we might be able to use radio controlled airplanes somehow to haze them and and the one said that's an interesting idea i'm gonna sleep on it she gets up in the morning she says I used to be a, Na a NASA aeronautical engineer, and I think what you really need are drones. And I had I vaguely knew about drones. She says, drone technology's leaping ahead, and I know a guy in the drone world. I'll, I'll set you up with him. And like I picked my job off the floor of the desert to have this desert botanist say that she used to be an aeronautical engineer. True to her word, she put me in touch with this engineer, and we were off and running. And like the connections that occur are pretty amusing. <laughs> that is amazing. Let's uh, just to, to back up for a, a second. So a lot of your work, and I don't want to give away too much in the film because uh, well, some of the humor is based on your, the clever it's, approaches you have. Yeah, I don't think we, there's no spoiler no, no alerts. It? Okay, right. cool. Let's lay some groundwork though for Raven. Yeah, so sure. describe the Raven threat and what's happening there. I have to describe the Raven very briefly is um, probably the most, arguably the most intelligent bird on the planet. Um, them and African gray parrots are probably neck and neck. They're, in, they're extremely opportunistic. They're very intelligent and they are very observant and they are, um, always watching out for opportunities. And so humans pre present them with numerous opportunities in the form of, well, the way we transform the desert environment has made it much m more raven friendly. And so think about the provision of water. Just think about water and how many places in a desert community there's water made available that prior to the existence of that community would not have been available. Golf course water hazards, suburban lawns, gutters with water running down them. Uh, agriculture is a huge source of water. So you've taken this limiting resource, water, which would limits something like a raven, and you just scatter it everywhere. All, all of a sudden, you made life much easier. Plus the provision of food. I could go down a list of food items that ravens have access to in desert communities. Um, shade is an interesting one. We grow trees, whereas before, in a, in a creosote bush scrub, we come in and we plant cottonwood trees and all sorts of ornamental trees. 
we give them shade. They, they're black birds. They like absorb a lot of solar <laughs> rays. And if we give them shade, they gladly take it and they live a cooler life. Nest sites, on and on, I could go on. But basically we may have made of the desert sort of a paradise for ravens. And what wild species do when they have opportunities like that, they turn them into babies. That's the driving force is have as many kids as you can and have them survive as well as they can so that they can also have kids, so on ad infinitum. So that's why we have a ton of ravens. And in the course of my career, um, astoundingly more ravens than we had to start. Part of their gig, they're generalist predators. They're actually omnivores. They'll eat, they'll eat vegetation as well. They're opportunists, but part of, one item on the menu is juvenile tortoises, which a tortoise takes about five to seven years minimum to grow to the, to the point that its shell can resist the attack of a raven. So there's this period of time where tortoises are extremely vulnerable to ravens when they're trying to grow big enough to become invulnerable. What's happening in a lot of desert tortoise habitat is that none of the young tortoises are surviving. They have to run this gauntlet that's about a five to seven year, maybe 10 year gauntlet. Very few of them are getting through, no recruitment into the population. Tortoise population's crashing and the, and the ravens aren't gonna be affected at all, really at all by the extinction of the tortoise because they have all these other food items to eat. Yeah. So there's not a feedback mechanism where, where the loss of tortoises has any implications for the ravens. They right. go on, la la la, we don't have any tortoises. Right. So the interventions we've come up with are designed to take the, the raven portion of the threats facing desert tortoises, try to ameliorate them or, or remove them if possible. That's the core of the work right. that the company is doing. We're trying to come up with what are ways we can buy some time for tortoises using emerging technology. Yeah. So the, okay, so the desert tortoise numbers have plummeted. I was watching some videos last night and, and prep for this and just for Joshua Tree alone, it was, they said something like there were 30 tortoises per square kilometer in 1990 and now only about three yeah, per square. Yeah, it's about. That's devastating. Yeah, it's 90 to 95% declines across the range. And the, so the, humans as we've moved more and more to desert the ravens have followed we leave trash there's water shade all of this yep and what happens is they they flip over the juveniles and essentially have yeah. a delicacy yes and so enter hard shell labs which is your company mm -hmm. and you guys come up with really clever and humane from what i can gather mm -hmm. so the, uh, ways that's to the goal. deter the ravens and I, I don't know if anyone's if this is how you think of it but i'm I, I love to geek out on all things behavior change for humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was thinking, oh, you're kind of like the Danny Kahneman of, uh, of behavior change for ravens. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're incredibly intelligent and they are apt learners. And so mm -hmm. the question or the challenge is to, to educate them, train them away from the worst of well away from behaviors that are resulting in the decline of tortoises but the 
the interesting thing for us right now is that they're problematic for a wide range of threatened and endangered species and actually for a huge number of wild creatures coastal they're hammering uh least terns and snowy plovers on the coast and marbled murrelets they're hammering sage grouse in the great basin desert um corvids are just their populations are exploding and they 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 can prey on a wide variety of species so it's not just like we're working it out with tortoises and you said why tortoises <laughs> tortoises are what i know and what some of my coworkers know but the things we're learning about general raven management are going to be applicable very widely probably actually probably globally because yeah. crow and raven populations are exploding everywhere and what we learn here will be applicable many other places yeah well, i was thinking that's a good point to mention for people as well as you know if someone's listening to this and thinks I'm not, what do i care about the desert tortoise yeah. this is this is analogous to many other imbalances that we face globally yes. with with species driven by our human behavior and and, <laughs> so. and the point of the i'm a luddite i'm not inherently drawn to gizmos but i think in my own in the in looking at the tortoise it's like if we don't intervene with these tools we will lose the tortoise i'm convinced of that we may not save the tortoise with all this all these all these gizmos but it is the way we can intervene and we must intervene if we're going to keep them on the planet that's just we have we've basically um we've passed a point at which we can allow what we call nature to take its course i think which is sad to me yeah. i mean i think um we had a free ride on this planet for millennia mm -hmm. for millions of years and it just took care of us and there were few few enough of us that we weren't altering the system enough that the system really noticed it was just like you know, it kept giving and giving and giving, and we kept taking and taking. We did what ravens have done, is we learned clever ways to exploit this thing, nature, that was taking care of us, and we turned it into babies. And now there's seven and a half billion of us, and seven and a half billion living a pretty extravagant lifestyle, myself included. I'm not lecturing anyone. Like, I'm part of this system. We all and, have blood on our hands on yeah, this one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we're all we're embedded in this system that's that just cranks at this incredible rate and is chewing through this planet and we're we're at the point i personally it's just like if i don't intervene there's not going to be tortoises on this planet anymore it's going to be a poorer and more boring planet if we lose tortoises they're fascinating creatures i love them i want them to be on this planet and so if i have to pick up drones and lasers and through and figure out 3d printing or associate with people who know that stuff that's like my boundaries are gone in that i'll, I'll try most anything well let, let's go there what, so you've been up to some fun with uh with the techies yeah <laughs> let can you uh, lay out the kind of key clever sure tech and fun stuff you guys have been up to to right. keep the ravens and behaving <laughs> yeah and i have to define my role my role i am not a technologist i am um, a 
technology user. So my role is largely to define problems and outline potential solutions. So when I'm, and I've talked to a lot of engineers and uh, Roy Haggard was the first, Frank Gercio is another guy I work with. I worked with Roy for a long time, still a good friend of mine, but we're not actively working together, but Frank Gercio is this 25 year old kid. He's an incredible engineer, total geek. And what I do is, but there are many other engineers I've dealt with, and uh, my job is to define the problem and sketch the outlines of a solution. Their role is to fill in the details to understand what devices could be used to affect the change that I define. And then we, we cooperate, we go out in the field, I try to break the thing they've built I succeed quite often. We go back, we figure out why did it break? In what way did it break? How do we keep it from breaking so that it can survive in a really rough environment? And, you know, there's an iterative process where we refine the thing till it's ready to go. And, you know, so far we've got drones that can fly up to uh, raven nests and very precisely uh fire a thin stream of oil onto the eggs it keeps the eggs from hatching that's raven birth control essentially um we have lasers are extremely effective avian repellents and ravens are particularly laser sensitive so we're using lasers in a lot of ways to drive ravens away from areas we don't want them to be either subsidy sites where they have access to resources or high quality habitat. There's a bunch of other applications for lasers in redistributing them. And then the one that I'm, I think is coolest, it may be the least effective of the bunch, but it's the coolest conceptually is the Technotort, which is using a 3D printed, highly realistic replica of a desert tortoise and there are several versions. One is simply a passive fake tortoise, and we put a game camera next to it, and we can record instances of ravens investigating and attacking these fake tortoises. So that has allowed us to measure the intensity of raven predation, which is very important in management to define the intensity of the problem and to basically map we've mapped across many areas of the mojave desert mm. how many ravens there are and what the attack rate is on tortoises and have been able to figure out and again this isn't me this is a u.s fish and wildlife services genius biologist who's figured out that the preliminary figure is if you have more than 0.89 ravens per square kilometer you are very unlikely to have a tortoise population persist if raven populations rise above that level that's the gauntlet the gauntlet then is so uh daunting that the tortoises the little tortoises will not survive it it's really important whether or not it is actually 0.89 that's an estimate but it's a figure and if you go out and you count more than 0.89 ravens in, in, you know, if you calculate the density above that, you're, that's the area where you have to apply these tools. Mm. That's one use of the techno tortoise. 
The one I like, though, is we have weaponized these things. Again, working with a bunch of genius engineers at this thing called Cornerstone Research Group, we've created one that um, counterattacks. It's the first counterattacking tortoise in the history of raven tortoise interactions of course it's not a real tortoise <laughs> but but the ravens think it's a real tortoise and they come up to it and i can i could describe the technology but it's that's less important than the fact of what it does when they peck at it with at a certain level of intensity of pecking the machine senses that it's being disturbed pecked by a raven and it has a it has a vessel with this chemical called methylenthranolate, which weirdly enough is artificial grape flavoring. Mm. It's highly irritating to birds. To us, it just smells like Welch's grape drink <laughs> because that's what they do put in Welch's grape drink. Methylenthranolate is just, it's a grape extract. And this stuff sprays into the face of the raven. That alone is is shocking enough to them. And you see images of this in the film um but it's also an irritant and it's just like our 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 hope is that we're going to get them to think twice about eating baby tortoises it's a stretch but it's not it will work it will help it will help to have ravens have this weird interaction with a tortoise where it blows up in their face and makes them unhappy. Yeah, you guys had some giddy moments oh, in the man. film. Right? so funny. <laughs> it's and, so funny to watch them. Yeah. And that's the thing is we're not going to get this in a podcast, but the the images of ravens when when you, you interrupt the pattern and you bug them, um, they're very amusing creatures. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless someone think... You guys were giddy because you hate the ravens no, and no. want to kill them. It's no, you, you were giddy because the technology was working, yes. and you're seeing the behavior change live. Obviously, Correct. we opened this segment with how much respect you have for the ravens. Yeah, I I love ravens. They're cool, yeah. but we have altered the system such that there are way too many of them. Yeah. If we're going to have anything besides ravens, we have to work to limit their numbers. And the way I look at it is like we've come up with a bunch of non-lethal attempts to address the problem because if these fail there are lethal means that are being talked about actively by many mm. like we're at a stage of desperation where a lot of people are saying we just got to poison massive wow. numbers of them wow. so um it's in the raven's interest to have us working to alter their behavior such that we reduce the intensity of the conflict such that lethal means are used minimally yeah one thing i was wondering from the film i mean obviously with the egg oiling that's a that's a population level yep. change the, the behavioral stuff so when they bail out and realize the turtles aren't food mm -hmm. where do they go what what happens then this is a it's the next phase of investigations we're hoping this fall and winter to put uh, radios on 20 ravens at a composting. It's a combination composting facility and sewage treatment plant near Victorville. And this is an open question. Like if we drive them away from these subsidy sites, where do they go? 
And we're hoping to answer that question because it's a valid question. But we do know we can drive them away from these subsidy sites, principally with lasers. They're very effective at that. Then the question is, where do they go? There is a concern that they'll go out into the desert and eat tortoises. I don't think they're going to do that because life with humans is so much richer. <laughs> it's just like McDonald's, French fries, and and drinking water out of the gutter and nesting in a in a cottonwood tree planted in a neighborhood it's just a way better life than yeah. like it's hard out in the desert yeah. and ravens are only really seasonal occupants of the desert at high density and that's during the nesting season they have to go out and defend a territory as soon as they're done raising their young boom they're back in town what, what so what's the season they're out in the desert it's a uh, February through mid-June. Um, you know, the timing is staggered, but it's about a two to two and a half month process to raise a clutch of babies. And it is during that time that the main conflict occurs because you have this pair of ravens that are trying to raise, you know, babies the size, less than the size of a chicken egg to full-size raven each of the fledglings is going to do that in six weeks. It's going to go from being, you know, the size of a golf ball to being the size of a full-grown raven in six weeks. They got to just pump food into those right. things. And tortoises that are out, you know, foraging for the vegetation matter necessary to grow are on the menu. And that's largely where the clash happens is in the spring. But it's enough that... You know, it's wiping out. There are many places where you go and you you look at the tortoise demography and it's all old tortoises and wow. aging. It's aging, it's like going to Del Webb Sun City or something. There's no babies and it's really depressing. Yeah. That part is really depressing. Yeah. However, I have found a couple of spots with really good, there are these weird little colonies in the, West Mojave, which is where the, the tortoises have really been hammered, there are still these little colonies with high-density tortoise populations and really good demography, bunches of little guys. And so I think we can use these active intervention tools on these particular hot spots and be effective and keep them going, mm -hmm. buying time for the species for us to figure out all the other stuff. Right. And uh, talk a little bit about the, the impact you've seen so far. You alluded to in the, at the end of the film that maybe it looks like some of this work is yeah. starting to uh, improve. The challenge we face with tortoises particularly is that the system is so slow to react because tortoises are hard to find, particularly little tortoises. And it takes a very long time for a tortoise to go from being a hatchling to being an adult, it's 15 to 20 years to grow to the size that they're reproductive. So the system isn't gonna respond very quickly and show us, oh, you're doing great. Right, yeah. So what I look at is at these subsidy sites, we can achieve essentially 100% um, repulsion of ravens. So we can deny them with essentially 100% effectiveness. We can deny them access to these richest subsidy sites we've had we've 
oiled thousands of raven eggs and in several instances in areas where we've done intensive egg oiling and gotten all the nests we've seen dramatic reductions in the follow-up use of those nest sites by ravens mm. so they they pay attention and if they fail and all the neighbors fail to have babies they notice that and and then it's time to go somewhere else so um take lasers deny the ravens access to the easiest resources and you're denying them um the resources necessary to make as maximize their reproduction then go in with the egg oiling reduce the total number of eggs they can produce particularly in a in a high value desert piece of desert tortoise habitat and then hit them with the techno tortoises and get them to like be really leery of tortoises because juvenile tortoises are such a minor part of their overall diet like giving up tortoises is not going to be that big a deal to them and so we're trying to get them to the point where they look at a tortoise baby tortoise and they go eh, it's not worth it, it might Got blow it. up in my face yeah. so it's this mix of tools change their numbers change their distribution change their behavior and maybe we're getting somewhere mm. um i i have this one hot spot where we're we've marked about 40 tortoises there's probably another 50 that, that we haven't yet caught. And I want to do a long-term study there of all of these raven management techniques combined with some habitat enhancements that we're working on uh, and full-time monitoring of the tortoises to actually answer this question. Um, and also just to demonstrate that if we apply these tools intensively on high value areas, we might be able to keep the tortoises going. Yeah. But at this point, it's like it's early any example of, of being able to maintain any population of tortoises will be important, not just for the practical, like keeping that set of tortoises alive. But another thing is all of us tortoise conservationists are human beings and we want some reason to maintain hope. And if we, like the current drought is also drying up hope among tortoise biologists. Because if it doesn't rain, you know, all the lowland tortoises are going to evaporate. And I have to be realistic about that. It's like, and that's beyond my control at this yeah. point. You know, we have, we've altered, it's probably associated with the alterations to global chemistry that we're, that are, clearly our responsibility partially mine i yeah. burn fossil fuels yeah but we have we've kicked a system out of whack on a global scale and this is like a local manifestation of it but if it's not that far out of whack and none of us really knows maybe these other techniques are going to be enough to buy enough time to keep some of these tortoises going and also to sort of teach us as a species it's part of a, a maturation process that we need to go through that we now have to actively maintain spaceship Earth as opposed to being ha happy-go-lucky passengers. We have to actually fly the damn thing and, and 
the work we're doing that we're doing at Heart Shell is like trying to figure out for one species, what are the levers you can pull and can you have an effect? I think, I think it's going to work to some degree. It's too early to tell, but the thing that makes me really happy is that the tools we're generating for this purpose, whether or not they, they save the day for tortoises are going to be useful um, more broadly in and more widely applicable in the broader um, quest to for us to coexist with this planet. Yeah. Is this right? I, I saw this in one of the uh, videos I was watching on desert tortoises. They can go up to, is it one to two years without water? Okay, so it just hit me as you were talking about it's our incredible. global chemistry situation here on, on Spaceship Earth. Yep. That's saying a lot. If we're nearing drought conditions that an animal that can go one to two years without water is hurting on the brink yep. that is they, that's a real wake-up call yes and this is the remarkable thing about tortoises and what i think they have to teach us is they are extremely conservative animals they conserve resources they're careful in their approach to um, moving through their environment they don't harm the thing that is mm. keeping them alive and they take advantage of every opportunity that it affords. So they've got, like I've made this study of drinking behaviors of tortoises. I've seen seven or eight ways they get water into their body. It's incredible the number of mm. how, um, how flexible they are. And it just depends on what the nature of the rainfall event is. But I've mm. seen juvenile tortoises snorting, little tiny drops of water off stalks of grass. They can go up in there and they'll suck it in through their nose. They actually drink through their nose more than through their mouth. Because um, they don't have lips. You know, we, we get used to having lips. Right. Tortoises don't have lips. So they have, they, they get it in through their nose. They, they drink through their nose very often. But like, there are incredible ways. Here's one, here's another one. This is sort of gee whiz. If you watch a tortoise and it starts to rain, Almost the first thing they do is they hike up, they, they extend their rear legs as far as possible. First time I saw that, I was just like, what the hell are they doing? Here's what I'm pretty sure they're doing. They pull their head in behind the overhang of their shell, and the channels, the way their shell is configured, water is channeled and sort of hangs off the, the eave that's in front of them, the, the eaves of their shell, and they go in with their nose and they're sucking water off the very edge of the front of their shell. It's remarkable to see, and it's this consistent behavior. Hike your butt up in the air and, and catch the runoff as it drips off the edge of your shell. And, and this is all like on the assumption that it's not gonna puddle up and they're not gonna be able to stick their head down in a nice puddle of water. So you gotta catch, if you're a tortoise, you have to catch every piece of rain Every piece of water that comes out of the sky is precious and you got to have a whole slew of behaviors because you don't know how intense that rain is going to be. You got to get on it, get the rain that falls. If it's a five minute storm, you better get every drop of water you can. Mm. Then you have it in your body 
and you use it very sparingly. They don't have sweat glands. They don't run around like crazy. They don't go jogging and, and <laughs> respire. They like, okay, I've got this resource. Now I, I had a drink of water. Uh, I don't know when my next drink is going to come because I don't have taps to go to. So I have to be very careful about how, how much of this water I expend and yeah, a year, some, maybe two, but certainly a year. Wow. That's insane to think about. Yeah. Like we're mammals and we don't get it, but no. think about, and they could, you know, if they're fully nourished, probably two years without food, a year without a drink of water, maybe two years without a drink of water. That is a, that's a formula for long-term survival on this planet because if things get nasty and you can just turn your metabolic fires down and and save what you got you can get through to the far side of maybe you can get through you maximize your chance of getting through the bad times so they're really incredible uh <laughs> exemplars of careful living they're resilient they extremely and, resilient they've been here for a long time yeah. i mean the basic turtle pattern evolved somewhere around 250 to 300 million years ago wow. and has not changed very much at all wow. you look at ancient ancient members of the turtle clan and they're absolutely identical you see them and it's like yeah it's a turtle that's reason be- that's reason enough to keep them around anytime Correct. you see an animal that has that prehistoric look it's oh, like they just transports right. you in time it's the amazing shell is such i'm reaching over right now to get I have a 3D printed model of a tortoise. Oh, you have a Technotort? There's oh that's my God. A, so this is a, a larger version. I'm sliding this kind of big uh checking out model. the Technotort. So that it's it's more important not just as the Technotort, but it's look at that thing as a sculpture, a time sculpture. Like yeah. that's 300 million years of interaction with the earth environment and it is a, an incredibly successful formula for how to persist on the planet. Is this the tail side? Or no, that's the, side? that's the, those are called the ghoulers. So are, when you were describing the water right thing, there. when they tilt yep. their shell, so look at the, does it look go at the channels. Their nose? Well, way, it hangs off that edge and then they go along with their nose and they, they suck it off the oh, edge. Okay. They slurp it with their nose Correct. off the edge. Because the same, when they hoist, up on their rear legs they always retract their head Mm. i've never been able to get around to really see it but i'm sure that's what they're doing because it's such a weird behavior because i was thinking you know do these channels go to that's where directly line up with the nostril when you put the head a certain way but if they're slurping it off the edge i think they're doing the whole thing like i saw an old guy he was actually a pretty young male but big male Uh, he spent all night one night on a piece of tin roofing um it was a light rain, but it was a constant rain. And he knew that that piece of tin roofing was going to uh, repel water. And he, he cruised around that piece of tin roofing all night long. He gained, I know he gained 350 grams overnight. So, wow. And that was more than, well, that was about 15% of his body weight. He was able in a light rain, but he recognized, oh, water is going to, accumulate on this piece of tin roofing which was just there was an old shack that fell apart so that's like you watch a tortoise go around in its environment and it's it's got an incredible gps mapping system and it also recognizes 
in in dry times they recognize resources that will be useful in wet times and they go to those places in advance of the storms because they also have the ability to sense atmospheric changes and the onset of rain so it's just like this stuff this level of sophistication in an animal with a brain the size of a pea sort of frames that are are you know being impressed with our big brains it's like brains are pretty cool and any amount of brains allows you to do some pretty um sophisticated behaviors i could get into tortoise sexual politics and also that that's that's like that's another podcast is like what's going on there we'll do a round two on it's sexual incredible. politics of the desert tortoise. Yes. i'll just drop i'll drop a teaser there um uh female tortoises can retain viable sperm of male tortoises for at least 17 years and probably indefinitely shit. wow what does that mean it means that a single female tortoise with the sperm of multiple males is an independent colonizing unit. Wow. She, if she runs out of males, she still has them inside her and she can, she's a, a walking repository of genetic diversity. That's incredible. 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 Is, does part of that have to do with, uh, might be a while till another dude comes exactly. around. Exactly. <laughs> or, or I can go off as a pioneer, go some, uninhabited chunk of habitat that's really good and lay lay eggs there from multiple males long after i've stopped seeing those males wow yeah that's incredible Um, i got a million of them i mean this is it this is like a lifetime studying these creatures and gradually dialing down into and seeing details like this and learning details from other researchers like i had no idea about retention of viable sperm that was a it was a scientific paper. There was a female right. tortoise that went 17 years, absolutely no exposure to other tortoises, yeah. and was having offspring of different fathers. Yeah. Most clutches of tortoises have multiple paternity. Yeah. Females are players. Since we started off with some martial arts, I was thinking yep. the way they move so slowly and they conserve resources. I was thinking kind of like the Tai Chi masters yes. of the desert. That's a very That's a very apt characterization is that they're absolutely efficient yeah and they move graceful they're graceful they're very graceful the fights are very graceful it's Mm. really exciting but just watching a tortoise cruise through its habitat once you understand their grace once you look at it they're incredibly graceful animals i want to take a hard 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 left turn here but that'll that i think will link back to the tortoises I know I, I've seen plenty of rattlesnakes out in the wild. In fact, right here in our canyon, we have mm-hmm. quite a few. You roam around the well, desert a lot. You, do you have any crazy rattlesnake encounter stories? Oh, yeah. Have you ever been bit? No. No? no. Well, that's good. Um, the snakes are not interested in wasting their venom on on a mam- on a big mammal. Like They can't swallow them. Yeah. But easy to step on them, though, too, because they camouflage pretty well. I've stepped yeah. over them yeah. because they are very well camouflaged. I, I've been struck at but again you know a a strike for for injecting venom into a prey item is very different from a display Mm -hmm. strike a lot of rattlesnake bites are dry but i'm going to tell you a rattlesnake story this is this might be this is competing certainly competing with the the other story i told for the weirdest thing so i 
interacted with rattlesnakes they're very spectacular they'll ra- rise up and they're rattling they're all pissed off at you and they're not even pissed off at you they're just telling you they're talking to you and they're saying don't fool with me look at how i'm behaving i wouldn't be behaving this way if i didn't have if i didn't pack a punch i wouldn't be drawing attention to myself i wouldn't be pulling up like this so i would always you know run grab my camera get the spectacular shot of the snake rearing up blah 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 one day i was out and i found saw this three foot mojave rattlesnake badass snakes they're bad well they're dangerous and he goes through his thing he rears up he's all upset blah 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 and i just think rather like i've got a jillion photos of these things why don't i just i'm gonna stop and just not move and see what this thing does and so he's all reared up and he's upset and rattling and gradually you know ceases to rattle as much still aware of my presence i was about 15 feet away and it very gradually settles down and it drops down to the ground it you know lowers the striking pose so now it's on the ground i'm figuring okay he's going to turn around and wander off because i'm not a threat and instead it starts coming toward me but very slowly and directly toward me and they have a a they have a locomotion form called the caterpillar crawl, which is very weird. You don't see it very often at all. But they'll form a dead straight line, and they're just, they're just using their belly scoots to scooch along. And it's this sort of caterpillar motion, but it's, it's very weird because they form a dead straight line. It's like an arrow coming at you, and this thing's coming toward me. And i got 15 minutes to think about this because it's just coming at me. How far away are you? It started off you know 20 15 okay. to 20 feet away yeah. and it quite clearly is coming straight toward me but in this very weird pose and so i had a long time to think about it and i'm squatting in the desert and i wear this weird kind of a dress thing with nothing on underneath it so my family jewels are sort of dangling <laughs> um central to the scene and about a foot off the ground and i'm sitting there you know i'm i'm squatting and you can squat for a long time comfortably especially if you're somewhat limber but you know he's getting closer he or she is getting closer and closer and closer and gets to within about 18 inches of me and i'm the one that loses nerve first and so i'm sitting there and my hands are on my knees and i and i flick four fingers just this tiny tiny gesture just a little bit of motion and the snake freezes and it's 18 inches away from me. And I was just thinking like, well, is the thing going to crawl right up under me? And then am I going to tumble over and get bitten on the family jewels just because I'm stiff and nervous? And the snake, as far as I could tell, was going to keep coming. And it stops, it waits about 30 seconds or a minute. And then it just turns around and makes 180 degrees, goes back the other way crawls about two feet and then goes back into the standard locomotion style and so i'm sitting there thinking what the hell was that about this is me projecting into the snake's brain but i didn't behave like a normal large mammal would normal large mammal would either flee or attack i had this third way which is i stopped I didn't do either of the normal expected mammalian behaviors. I think it was being a biologist. It's like, 
Oh, this is interesting. Snakes live a long time. That snake could live another 20 years. Um, I think it was doing wildlife research. It was trying to figure out why is this creature behaving this way? I might have been the first human it had ever encountered, but I was a large man. I mean, it could sense me as a big, warm mammalian thing. It knew I was moving around, and then I stopped. I did a weird thing, which was I stopped. It was clearly coming to check me out. And like, what was the motivation? And I think it was like, on some level, it's like, this, is, this could be valuable information for me down the line. Mm. I've had a lot of rattlesnake encounters. I love rattle, rattlesnakes yeah. are just the coolest. Yeah. And they don't scare me very much because I'm pretty good at spotting them. And when I'm not, they rattle at me and tell me where they are. Yeah. Like they're telegraphing their punch. Quite, right. They don't want to. They don't want to bite me. They yeah, don't want to use that venom. <laughs> Venom's too valuable, and the odds of them if they bite me, I'm probably going to kill them. And so it's kind of a last resort thing, or it's like you step on them, and it's like shit. This thing's stepping on me. I got to get it to not step on me, and it bites. But a lot of bites are dry, so it's like I'm not. I'm way more scared of driving out to a plot <laughs> yeah. than I am about the rattlesnakes <laughs> on the plot. That's when I'm really in danger because freaking humans are crazy. Have you seen <laughs> what people, have you seen what young males do in cars? <laughs> oh my I watched some display behavior today, some automotive display behavior. Terrifying. <laughs> just terrifying. I love how you just, just describe your road rage like a biologist. That's awesome. <laughs> That's what it is. And this is the kinship part. Yeah. This is like, you look at human behavior and it's just like, it's so recognizable as generic, yeah. you know, large vertebrate, male behavior yeah. i learned i need to learn to not be as afraid of the rattlesnakes they're so it's well, amazing when you come across them they are camouflage but it's also such a deeply yes, embedded pattern for humans it's absolutely it's ingrained. like a quick jump before i've even yep. my brain Correct. has really even registered and it. there's there is i read a, a characterization of a scientific study that in a population that lives in proximity to snakes something like 90% of the members of that population are scared spitless of snakes, but there's 10% that are fascinated by them. And if you think about it in terms of social evolution, it's probably good having a subset of your population who isn't freaked out by them, mm -hmm. is drawn to them because they're a food source. And they're yeah. also the ones that aren't freaked out, learn about them and transmit that knowledge to the ones that are yeah. freaked out. So there is this kind of genetic yeah. mix. And I happen to be part of the 10% that's just fascinated. I've always been fascinated by reptiles. I'm I don't know why. It I'm trying to come over to that side. It you. doesn't, it's, it's not something like, I could take you out and show you reptiles and show you the wonder of reptiles, including rattlesnakes, and you would be more comfortable with them. Mm. But there's a certain strange, yeah. subset of the population like me it's just yeah. like completely entranced yeah. by reptiles and it predates my consciousness i don't yeah. understand why yeah. i love reptiles the way i do yeah. i've always been this way yeah. it's just like that's cool yeah it's interesting that one back thing or one more thing on rattlesnakes real quick is i've seen some photos of desert tortoises in their burrows with rattlesnakes so th those two don't spar or get after each other that's more of a co yeah cohabitation no situation they're not, they don't form, they don't pose a threat to each other. That's cool. And, and this is something that's significant about 
tortoises is that they dig these holes out in the desert, these deep burrows that form thermal refuges for many other creatures in the desert. Mm. And like the decline of desert tortoises has made the entire desert less habitable for all these other species mm. because they would use, they would sit in unused tortoise burrows and escape the heat. And then the tortoise comes back and you got a snake and a tortoise in a burrow and it's no big deal. I did, I did witness one time the death of a, of a tortoise that we're pretty sure was bitten by a rattlesnake, but that was probably an accidental, right? like it was a one-off. Yeah. Yeah, Something happened and this guy got bit and he died and it was probably a Mojave rattlesnake, but don't know for sure. I guess for a, a rattlesnake, there it's probably like a human going, well, I'm not going to eat the walnut with the shell on. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, there's no point. Like, I'm not, I can't swallow that thing, and it's not going to hurt me. They know right. each other. Yeah. They, live, they yeah. live in the same environment. This is the thing, is that creatures are biologists. They yeah. know the behavior of the other members of the community, mm-hmm. whether they're of the same species or not. Uh, it would be insane for them not to pay attention to these other creatures mm-hmm. to assess, are they threatening to me? Can they help me in some way? I mean, there are multiple examples of ravens and other predators cooperating, you know, cooperative hunting by, by uh, on a cross-species basis. So, um, you know, again, they're way more sophisticated. We're not as sophisticated as we think we are. Yeah couple more questions and we'll wrap this thing up. One yep. that I love to ask people is what, what is nature to you? How do you define nature? It may seem like a strange one, no. but when you look up, I wrote a blog post about this. When you look up the definition of nature and whatever dictionary of choice, there's about 10 different definitions, many of which conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Some include humans, some yeah. don't, but how do you define nature? I started off thinking of it as this, this, um, entity and call it an entity that was under attack by humans. <clears throat> the evolution of my thinking has come to the point where nothing is not nature. None of our behaviors are unnatural. It all springs from, it came from the interaction of our genetics with the system. But the larger system is this incomprehensibly sophisticated um, system of replication. Mm -hmm. And it's our mother. It's our life support system. It's a source of wonder. It's it's an infinite kaleidoscope. It's, it um, beggars description. Mm -hmm. It's, it's it. It's it. It's, it. it's 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 everything. Everything is nature. We're embedded in it. We depend on it. We have to learn its language really quickly to avoid catastrophe. So I'm going to put in this little, just a little plug of where I'm where the thing that's driving me. <clears throat> so we're on the verge of having. So I, I talked about how we have to put our hands on the levers learn how to manage ecosystems actively as opposed to letting them go. Um, We're on the verge right now of having internet control of devices out in the environment and be able to 
You know, one example is a laser. We can we can remote, we can operate over the internet. We can operate a laser, and so we can have that effect at at internet distances. And where I want to go with the thing is to turn appropriate conservation actions into online games and use the there's a giant pool of human consciousness playing video games right now and they could all be with a few tweaks those could be um active conservationists whether or not they give a rip about conservation if it's fun they'll play the game it's all a question of configuring conservation action as compelling games and it's absolutely doable that's like, I'll one tell of the you, coolest things i've ever heard of i'll tell you <laughs> Shooting lasers at ravens is just infinitely fun. Like I, it never gets old. It's weird. I've done thousands and thousands of shots at ravens, and I never tire of it. And it's just like the infinite shooting gallery, and nobody dies, and you affect a positive change. This is what this is like. I've had this in my brain for ten years now. It was like no, it's nine years ago. This flashed into my head. I'm just going to say this. I don't think our brains are generators of ideas. I think they're they're um, receivers of vibrations from elsewhere. And I don't really do um, dogma or religion or anything like that. <laughs> but there are higher levels of organization whose and we are transducers of signals from those higher levels of organization it's the edge of mystery i don't know what the hell's going on but someone up there wants me to figure out how this could all be a bunch of games have you, have you ever heard of um i'm gonna have to follow up with this in the show notes how i'll get a. I know the last name is mcgonagall yeah it's kelly or kate mcgonagall uh, no, it's does. Uh, it's uh is using video yeah, yeah, yeah. games yeah, um, to simulate migration for climate change and all this. Yeah, it's, um, I'll put it in the show notes. Jane McGonigal. Jane McGonigal. This is your your yeah. idea. Just made me think of that. And I read her book, one of her books, years ago, and I just thought this is this is the same thing. I independently had this flash, but it's the same insight yeah. she's had, and a number of other. It's not. You know what we've done is just like we've developed the technology, and mm. it it's been an eight year to get mm. to this point. It's not easy to do this, but we're on the verge of super exciting. And I think it's just going to, it's going to light, it's going to light people up when it happens. Like I can taste it. It's yeah. just like, this I, is going to work. I am super excited about this. I love the creativity of the idea. It's like crowdsourced. Correct. Uh, ecosystem behavior change. Yes. Or whatever and you call it. I don't know. More, more fundamentally, like I've just decided we're a screen-based species now. That's just how we are. And yeah. and being angsty or or old man, you kids get off my lawny about it, isn't going to change <laughs> the fact that we're just all looking at screens all the time now. Yeah. So that what occurs to me is like planet Earth is this fascinating, like blows away any video game that's ever been constructed of any any of these virtual worlds are really pale pale reflections of what's going on out there and and if we can harness it's not even harnessing if we can just introduce 
all of these earthlings who are staring at screens to their planet on which they're currently living like aliens, um, they'll be blown away. Because yeah. I, I just got lucky. I went out and I got paid to go walk in the desert for 35 years. I was like, geez, this place is pretty cool. Whoa, look at that. Wow, yeah. look at that over there. Yeah. Hey, that snake is doing something interesting. Yeah. That's just been my life. And it's yeah. just like, how can I take that and deliver it, deliver the best parts of it to the rest of my species? Mm. That's a reason. That feels like my mission. It's just like... All the rest of it, saving the tortoise and all that, I'm trying, but it's really wake humans up. Yeah. And how, what tools do we have to wake humans up? Because we got to wake up really fast. Yeah. And we got to come up and be sharp and yeah. be working together on a scale that has no precedent. And I think that um, a good way to get people wired back into their planet is to start by playing games. Because if you look mm -hmm. at humans, as soon as we have any surplus of resources, we start playing games. It's like yeah. we want entertainment. We're desperate for entertainment. And as soon as like the, what you, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's like play. He should have put play in there because yeah. as soon as we have food and water, we start playing. Yeah. And, and we don't, we don't <laughs> seek out lectures from sour-faced fundamentalists. That's not something like... There's plenty of examples of that temporarily mm -hmm. um, succeeding in human yeah. culture, but long term, yeah. it's yeah. like that's a sign of someone needing more play in their life. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> and God Almighty, I mean, I love. I'm an environmentalist. I have been since I like whatever the hell an environmentalist is. But we've we've done a really bad job of marketing, and I think I look at the game industry. It's just exploding, and it's just like we got to hook into that. We got to so like they've figured some stuff out. I yeah. look at the NFL, and it's just like they've really figured out yeah. how to package a game in a compelling way and yeah. get godzillions of people to pay attention. It's like we ought to be applying those lessons to saving the planet and saving our skins. I got a daughter on this planet. I'd really like things to be okay for her as she yeah. you know, gets to the age I am. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I there absolutely love it. Yep. Well, speaking of mission, let's close with this. In the film, you talk about the idea of laying bricks. Do yep. you want, want to share that yeah. story? Um, and that just came to me like I started thinking metaphorically um, and for some reason I started thinking of the, the people. So the medieval cathedrals were ridiculously out of scale mm. for the communities in which they were established. Like you had one giant building, all the rest of them were, you know, at most two story things. And then you got this, this thing soaring up into the sky, the, took hundreds of years to build and the community had to decide okay we want a grand cathedral you know you say well we want to you know give praise to god or we want to outdo the next guys over they have a cathedral it's 150 feet tall ours is going to be 200 feet <laughs> i like that was probably all there but there came a point at which okay here's the design for the cathedral now we got to start building it and the first people who started building it knew they were going to be dead long before it even probably looked much like a building, let alone was soaring 200 feet in the air. I mean, you look at that, that uh, Sagrada, um, 
Sagrada Familia and, yeah. and Barcelona. Yeah. yeah. They've been working on that for 75 yeah. years with like all the tools of modernity and it's still not done. So you go back in the 15, 1600s. Well, there were, there were the guys that were like the, the ones that laid the foundation and started, you know, I use the term brick, but maybe they were stonemasons or whatever. But the point is some group had to start and they had to, they knew this thing isn't going to be done by the time I die. Mm. And they had to be okay with that. And they had to feel like the effort they were putting in, in advance, like they were, it was it's the same as like Moses seeing the promised land. It's just like, I'm not going to get there, but I believe in the mission enough that I don't need to see this thing to resolution. Mm. I need to know that I'm making a contribution that will tend in that direction. And then the case of a cathedral is very clear cut. It's like we're building this building. But I just think in terms of making um, a, a contribution to humanity, figuring the hell out of this pretty horrible box we put ourselves in ecologically mm. is like we're, we're, we have a, a grand project and it, we're not going to like there's never going to be hundreds of tortoises per square mile like I witnessed when I was a child <laughs> when I was in my early twenties, yeah. I walked out in this wonderland of tortoises. That's never going to happen in my lifetime. Not a way. There's not a way it can happen, yeah. but I can, in the case of the tortoise, I can try to buy some time for this species mm. in hopes that future generations will care enough to keep the effort going. And maybe we get to a point where the tortoises return because we've allowed them to return by virtue of taking care of what they need. Mm. So beyond that, it's like human survival, I think is worthwhile and we're going to have to apply all the tools at our, at our disposal right now. I feel like the stuff we're doing is pretty crude. It's gizmos and it's battery powered, this and that. Mm -hmm. But the real point is to shift human consciousness so that we care like it's pretty insane that we don't care about our life support system I know. that is pretty freaking weird like of all species if there's something that's unique about human beings maybe it's that yeah. that we're suicidal on us on a species level that we're suicidal yeah. well there's a unique yeah. aspect nobody else is really actively either trying to kill off their life support system or ignoring the clear evidence that they are killing off their life support system. Yeah. So I'd like us to transcend that really. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I, sometimes I just think we're not, not only are we not the most intelligent species, we may be the least intelligent, the, the relative use of our intelligence for our survival may be minimal compared to every other species mm. on the planet. So there's a, a humbling note for all the listeners. That that, is, it's yeah. like, you know, look around, we're pretty freaking crazy, and we're, we're walking a gangplank of our own creation, yeah. and we, I would really like us to turn around, get back on the boat, and steer <laughs> the boat in a better direction, rather than jump off the freaking gangplank into the shark-infested waters yeah. of our future. There you go. Well, let's play, lay some bricks and play some video games. Yep. Okay, last Playing couple. the video games, those are the bricks we could lay, yes. which is a mixed metaphor that delights me. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'd I love to leave people with, uh, 
I, so we have this concept on nature junkie called microdose nature, yeah. partly because from a behavior change standpoint, we, sometimes we think these days in modern life that to connect with nature, we have to go to a yeah. national park or right. some grandiose or, you know, be like Alex Honnold and climb El Capitan yeah. or something in Yosemite. Yep. But there's so many little wonderful ways we can connect daily. And it does take some skills though. Curious if, do you have any top, you know, one, two, three, whatever ways or one that people practically can go do tomorrow that works for you? Like what's your way to connect with nature on the regular that First, you think is powerful? Pay attention. Mm-hmm. Open your open all of those sense organs. Your eyes, your ears, your nose, your balance, your your sense of touch. So have all your tools accessible to you. Um, we're visually oriented, so eyes are mostly the usual first one. But um, look at things. Pay attention to the things in your environment that you have never paid attention to before. If you've never watched a lizard do its lizard thing, stop when you see a lizard and watch it. Just watch. I, maybe it'll do something interesting. Maybe it won't. But you're, you're trying to learn a language. And it's the language of nature. And in order to learn it, you've got to stop and listen and look. Nature will talk to you. If you listen, it's talking to us all the time. I think really our problem is we've just learned not to listen and not to pay attention. It's like kind of like the la 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 thing. You put your fingers in your ears and you shut your eyes and you go la la la. That's what we've been doing on a massive scale. Well, all you have to do is stop that. It's like take your fingers out of your ears, put the freaking phone down, look at something. Like go look at a flower, watch a bee crawling around inside a flower and you don't need a bunch of knowledge if beforehand go watch it then look it up online and you'll figure out oh the flower is generating nectar for the bee the bee comes in gets its body coated with the genetic material of the flower and then goes to another flower and is a genetic delivery system for the flower the flower is using the bee the bee is using the flower they're not using each other they're cooperating that's just a tiny fragment that you can get from 15 seconds of watching a bee wander around inside a flower use the tools of technology the web is wonderful but go out and get a stimulant some i love the microdose Um, metaphor it's like go get a little shot the shots are everywhere it's in weeds like what's the pattern of weeds growing in your backyard why are they there why are they there and not over there what animals cruise through and use them we have a at my house in joshua tree we have a little pie plate and we just fill it with water and it's kind of like you know the animals come to drink but we i get to see interactions like the other day there was a rabbit there was a cactus wren and there was a white crown sparrow all wanting to take a drink. And it was like, okay, I get to watch this little interspecies. Party at Tim's house. Well, or <laughs> it's like my turn now. I'm the rabbit um, and the bird's hanging off to the side. and watching. So it's just like that. It's everywhere. And all you have to do is shut up, which I haven't done much of in the last two hours. But <laughs> shut up and go outside and look around. Like the other day, yesterday... A raven and a 
Cooper's Hawk were chasing through my yard and I just saw this flash of like Cooper's Hawk and Raven. And I think the Raven was chasing the Cooper's, but it was just this, like that was a microdose. Wow. You know, and then the Cooper's Hawk ended up in the tree in our backyard and it was sitting there and I got this dinosaur they're, birds are dinosaurs. I got this dinosaur hopping around in this this like predatory dinosaur hopping around in this tree, and it's just like it's everywhere. Now I'm lucky. I live in this you know beautiful desert community, but it's everywhere. It's like yeah. I I went. I was in San Francisco the other day, and I'm looking at I'm looking at nature there. It's just like all the human beings, and then I get to Golden Gate Park, and it's just like. Oh, there's some natives here and there's some introduced species. And there was a sign saying coyotes seen in this area. That's a microdose of like <laughs> yeah. downtown San Francisco. There's a strip park. It's just like, yeah, coyotes, sure. So yeah, you know. It's everywhere. It's it's all around us. Well, there's the moody blues. It's it, it's all around us if we could but perceive. Um, to know ultraviolet, infrared, and X-ray. <laughs> anyway, I'm off on Moody Blues. That's my good idea. one. Yeah. Well, last thing here. Uh, any? Where do you want to? Where can we send people? One, I would. I want to make sure we have the link or access to go see the film. Where yeah. can people find the film right now? It's touring with a number of film festivals. It's going to be at Doc NYC, which is this big, big deal in the doc. Like, I'm really happy with how yeah. this is being received including you just seeing it and going wow cool movie um so it's going to be on the on the film festival circuit for a while the um mountain wild traveling uh thing that you saw that's mm -hmm. going all mountain over the place film, mountain yeah. film yeah <clears throat> so there it will tour for a while it's going to be streamed i think either on there's a couple of possible streaming things but eventually it will be streamed on some service and will be broadly available over the internet. And that'll probably be early next year, spring next year. I think it's going to be. Okay. Um, cool. So if people are interested in that, hardshelllabs.com is our website. They can check, like they can go to the website and just see the breadth of work. There's a bunch of commercial, like we're applying these tools for protecting agricultural resources and, and, aircraft safety like the interesting thing is stumbling into this trying to yeah. solve the problem of tortoises and ravens and realizing oh there are all these ways we can apply this technology to solve other problems and to reduce the conflict between wild birds wild animals and humans yeah like and there's a bunch of business opportunities associated with it and we got to pay the bill somehow so we're just like if if we can figure out some commercial cash cows to keep the doors open, we can keep doing the conservation work. But it's great. You know, we're we're embedded in this capitalist system where the the opportunities to just straight go out and do conservation work are rare yeah. and underfunded. But there are a bunch of people who have problems with birds and we're trying to solve those. So yeah. it's um but they can go to the website, see that, and pay attention over time. <clears throat> and you know, if somebody emails us and says where can I see EcoHack? I'll try to put them in touch with that information. Is there is there a site for the film itself, or where where's the best Not place yet. to go for people? Here's to how find it goes: yeah. when uh, it's going to be at Doc NYC, it's going to be at the Banff Film Festival, okay. which supposedly is another big big deal. Um, 
I honestly, I don't know if Speculative Films has a website, but I would look up Speculative Films, mm-hmm. and and um, there are a number of other. There's a whole slew of film festivals. It's going to be in. Um, there's something in Arkansas. Right. So um, film fest tour, and then it'll be streaming. Film in fest the tour, and then streaming in the spring. Great. Thereafter, at yeah. infinitum. Yeah. Yeah. Go see it. It's cool. But also realize. Man, it looks old. Like we're on to this other. We're on a up next some, level. Exactly. What you see there is just like was laying. Those were laying the bricks for yeah. the cathedral we're building yeah. now. We're we're on several rows of bricks up from what you see in the film. Well, I got it. So um, one of my very dear friends, her son Charlie Sweet. Shout out to Charlie Sweet. He's a high schooler who's an avid 3D printer. Charlie, let's put some 3D printing to use to solve some of these eco problems. Tim, thank you so much for saying yes. I love the film. I hope uh, people will take away from this. There's a lot to be done with desert tortoises and how cool they are. And also see that it's a, the desert tortoise situation with the Ravens is symbolic of many other environmental things we're uh, faced with. It's fractal reality. It's like every level this story is going on. It's the story of our times. And I'll finish with this. We all have the potential to be heroes. We we are so pumped full of stories of heroes. Here's an opportunity. We can be heroes. It's like, you know, it's cool. Um, That's the opportunity. And rather than think, oh my God, we're under threat, blah, blah, blah. All is lost. It's like, all is lost if we don't start acting like heroes. So let's like strap on your freaking armor and let's get going. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank yep. you so much for being here. Yep. Thanks for being on the show, taking a risk and saying yes to some random dude with a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you you can't turn around these days yeah. without running into a podcast. And I want to thank you and your team and yep. at Hardshell Labs and Speculative Films for doing what you guys are doing, sure. putting the word out and getting damn creative with eco solutions here. time so thank folks. you yep my pleasure it's Cheers. been fun all right oh go ahead all right here's what i think was happening with those two tortoises oh I, yeah we got to complete the story of the tortoises i think it was a father and a son and from a from the pers- if you want your offspring to succeed and you do because they're carrying your genetic material it makes perfect sense in an animal that's going to live for a century to train its male, a male to train its male offspring in the art of manly combat. Mm. Um, and I'm pretty damn sure that's what I was looking at. Was, and we have examples of father-son pairings because on that project, there was actually um, genetic typing of all the individuals. Unfortunately, that little guy wasn't part of the genetic analysis so we don't know for sure Mm. that was the son but i'm pretty damn sure that was a father-son combination and the weird thing is we saw this multiple times that the smaller tortoise would instigate the interaction like the small tortoise would walk up to this big male and and take them on but we only ever saw uh, single pairs. It wasn't like the little guy would go take on some other big tortoise. It was always, you know, there's this guy number 43 and he had this little guy that would just like series of days 
and I saw this little tortoise and it's just like, here comes the big tortoise, run and hide. And instead he goes up and he takes him on and it's just like, come on, dad, show me how to fight. I think that's what was going on. That is really That's cool. a level of that sophistication. Really cool. Most people don't ascribe that level of sophistication yeah. to turtles and that's me projecting onto it, but it's just like, it's the most reasonable explanation mm. I have for what I saw. Yeah. Pretty freaking, pretty freaking interesting. That was really cool. <laughs> That's that was a microdose of nature, and I'll end with this: I mainline nature. Like for thirty-five <laughs> years, I got to mainline. Yeah, it. you're macrodosing I am regularly. Totally addicted to the thing, and it's just like, <laughs> folks, it is freaking amazing. We live on this amazing planet. Oh my God, look at clouds. Just go out and look at a cloud sometime. Like that's megatons of water up in the floating up in the air look at it look at look at a sunset it's just like yeah we're bathed in it mm-hmm. all we got to do is wake up and go man alive this place is beautiful we got to take care of it the end <laughs> thank you tim uh, my pleasure <laughs> ah just so stoked from this conversation with Tim. His energy is contagious. I hope you feel that. You know, I was thinking it would be easy for Tim to be pretty jaded and hopeless at this point after wandering the desert for decades and watching the numbers of the desert tortoise decline, but he's not. He's like a stoked little grommet, just as full of wonder as ever. I wish I could just take a little bit of that wonder and share it with everyone. This was one of those conversations where I wasn't sure what to expect, but it just blew me away and it was a hell of a lot of fun. I learned a ton about the desert tortoise, ravens, and completely expanded my view of new solutions that might be possible to help rebalance our ecosystems. Even with something like video games, which I would have never even imagined as a possible solution. It's a great example of keeping an open mind and holding on to that growth mindset as we move through life. It's totally inspiring, so thanks for that, Tim. And I'm going to leave you with Tim's recommendations for microdosing nature. He basically said, pay attention Open up all of your senses and listen to the language of nature. Nature is always speaking. We just have to learn to listen. As always, thanks for tuning in to Nature Junkie Radio. I invite you to head over to our website at naturejunkielife.com. That's where you can find show notes, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on all things nature connection, and you can even share a microdose. Yeah, send us a microdose. Of nature, that is. At Nature Junkie, we refer to brief and consistent connections to nature as microdosing nature. We love microdosing nature because it's a powerful way to create and stick with healthy habits by making them small and easy. If you each share one simple way that you love to connect with nature, then ultimately we'll create a diverse library of inspiration to help us all get and stay connected to nature. We plan to share your microdoses on our website and in future episodes of the podcast. To share yours, simply go to the bottom of any page of our website at naturejunkielife.com 
or email us at hello at naturejunkielife.com. Microdose nature and replenish your stoke.